welcome to 100 Centuries, Episode 3. I'm Connie B. Dowell. I'm Stephen B. Dowell. And today we're talking about the Women's Club movement, um, which was an important social and civic movement for middle-class women in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So, uh, this is a, a topic I don't know very much about. But Connie does, because she's been yeah. researching this a ton for a book she's writing. Um, and so I'm going to just kind of ask her questions about in general. And the first one I'm going to ask her is, what on earth is a women's club? And how is it different from, let's say, like, I don't know, the the Masons or something like that? Okay, well, um, women's clubs grew out of the broader 19th century literary and cultural club movement. Um, throughout the 19th century, it was there was kind of a, a fad for gentlemen's clubs. Um, think like the Pickwick Papers, where the, these gentlemen would come together and educate themselves culturally and have these cultural events and also have this social aspect to it as well. Um, and women wanted something similar for themselves. It was even more important for them because they didn't have the same access to education that men did. Now, when you say literary, do you mean like literary as in, as in public speaking, or are you talking about literary as in books and things? Yeah, literary as in books and education. This okay. is an important distinction um, that you could definitely talk about, yes, Stephen. Yes, because literary societies are... Um, well, normally when you hear the word literary societies, we think modern-day literary societies being being books and whatnot. But a lot of them, especially in the past, had to do with more with public speaking and debate and things like that. Um, and so you still have at a lot of old universities the literary societies like the Diophys at and and uh, UNC or the Demosthenians in Georgia or things like that. Yep. So um, there's kind of a double meaning to literary um, when it comes to clubs especially in the 19th century, um, which is when both literary societies and literary or gentlemen's clubs originated. Um, but here we're thinking, we're thinking literary as in books. Um, and so they started with this focus on self-improvement and education um, and cultural exposure for their members and gradually, gradually changed. Um, they began to evolve out of this basically by, by wanting to learn about current events and having speakers come to their clubs. And from there, you know, the women would start to get fired up about some of the things they learned and want to make changes in their communities. And so throughout their development, they, they became more of a civic action club, a, a community improvement clubs. Okay. Now, did it take up any specific causes. So, I mean, is this just another branding of like the temperance movement or the suffragette movement or things like that? Or is this completely different? No, this is, um, this is a much broader movement than temperance or suffrage. Um, it's also a much more moderate movement and therefore larger because this could attract women who weren't necessarily, um, as politically active who weren't necessarily interested in being part of the suffrage movement or the temperance movement. Um, but they did want to see they, change in their community. Yeah, so they like want better schools, positive changes. Better working conditions, things like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, what was the typical member of this of a women's club like? Were they just 
kind of the wealthy elite women in the town, or are they more like just anybody? Um, typical member of a woman's club would be middle class, upper middle class, maybe upper class, but mostly upper middle class women. Women who have time on their hands. They're, you know, they're through the industrialization of the age, they don't have as much work to do in the home anymore. And now they've, but they're mostly housewives, so they need something to do. And they want to spend their time doing something in a way that um, was considered appropriate for a woman of that class in that time. If they went out and got a job, then, well, of course, there were working women at that time. This was much more socially acceptable for that kind of upper middle class lady. Right. Okay. Now, in affiliation wise, um, was it just generally done by whatever town you lived in or... Were they grouped in, in other ways, like a church group or you know, what commonalities? What originally brought these women together besides just the love of education? Um, love of education is one. I imagine they were probably mostly from the same social circle. It, you know, it's hard to look at uh, basically women's clubs across the whole country. and they, they all came together in their own unique ways, but they would all have been from the same social circle. They would all have known each other and come together informally before forming a formal group. Plus, once they'd heard about a women's club in, say, a neighboring town or a neighboring or a big city, they might want to emulate yep. that and have something for themselves on the local level. Mm. Um, as far as the origin of women's clubs, what's often touted as the first women's club, but it's really kind of hard to say for sure because um, a lot of these organizations were... Um, like the Athens Women's Club that you're going to hear about later, formed informally before they were officially chartered. But the what we think is possibly the earliest women's club is called Sorosis. Um, and that is S-O-R-O-S-I-S. -S. That is not cirrhosis, like the cirrhosis of the liver. Right. <laughs> um, though if you type Sorosis in a search engine, it will it will think you're misspelling. You'll get some on on point results, and you'll also get some off-topic stuff about cirrhosis of the liver. Um, and it was founded by Jane Cunningham Crowley in 1868, um, after she wanted to attend um, a special dinner held by a gentleman's club um, honoring Charles Dickens, but she wasn't allowed to attend. So she said, well, you know, I can do this myself. So she formed her own club. Um, now, sorosis um, has two possible etymologies um, that I found in my research. One of them seems a little bit more likely than the other. <laughs> so the more likely etymology, at least in my opinion, is that it comes from soror, Latin for sister, like so sisterhood. Um, you also see that. Sorority. Etymology for sorority. Sorority, things like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Soros um, is generally the root for sister in a yeah. lot of words in English. Well, the what seemed like the less plausible etymology was that it came from a Greek word meaning either like the, the sweetness of mixed fruits or a fruit from multiple flowers. You know, like some fruits have 
um, multiple flowers and multiple ovaries that actually make up the fruit. Um, we could, Stephen and I could not find any any no, such word I, when we, we looked this up. We I couldn't find it. looked it up in my copy of, uh, of Little and the, my Greek lexicon, and it was nothing even close to that was in there. Um, and just listening to the word and, and what it is, it doesn't seem like it should be Greek in origin. Now, I could be wrong. My Greek is rusty, and Lord knows Greek has a thousand words for everything. Um, thousands of words for everything. So if you're out there listening and you happen to know the actual Greek behind this, uh, you know, kind of send it our way. I'd be curious to know what it actually is, because uh, I couldn't find it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I couldn't find it either, so I just... I don't think it's there, but if it's there, please let us know. <laughs> um, so, well, the women's clubs in general weren't cause-specific, there were a number of causes that they did influence as a whole. Um, working conditions, like having you know, living wages, fair working hours, um, safe working conditions, especially for women and children. Um, Children's welfare in general was another big cause. There was a lot of working on um, improving schools, establishing schools in areas that didn't really have a school, um, establishing libraries. There was also some public health elements as well, like pure food laws and conservationism. So establishing um, parks, parks and you know, protecting the environment. Those were all um, causes that they lobbied for, um, which was really important in a time when they, they could not vote, but they could lobby for change. Right. Uh, about the 1990s, they started to organize more um, generally across the nation instead of just operating solely as individual groups. And the General Federation of Women's Clubs uh, I'm sorry, of women's clubs. I, I misspoke because sometimes these clubs are named women's clubs and sometimes women's clubs, but the organization is the General Federation of Women's Clubs. And this is still in, in practice right now. So you can uh, go to their website and find out all about them and find a women's club near you. And it was founded in 1890 by Jane Cunningham Crowley who is the same woman who founded Sorosis. And the organization provided women um, with networking through conventions, um, through communication. So it, it gave them a much larger lobbying power and a way to connect with women across the country. Now, at the same time, this is when they were, the clubs in general were beginning to undergo reform and shift their focus away from improving the education of their members to improving their community. And the General Federation of Women's Clubs really encouraged that. General Federation of Women's Clubs was a bit more exclusive. It largely excluded women of color and Jewish women. But there was another organization founded in the same decade, um, the National Association of Colored Women whose motto is lifting as we climb, um, who are really interesting and could probably have a whole other podcast to themselves. So I'm not going to touch on them too much here. Um, 
And so they provided a way for women of color to have those same networking opportunities. And they had a they had a bit more of a focus on helping the working class than did the General Federation of Women's Clubs. So as I said before, this is, you know, while the movement itself, um, when you think about it historically, you think about the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but there are modern legacies today. So there are still women's clubs around the country. Um, if you have a junior league near you, that's a women's club. Women's that is club. a modern incarnation. Hmm. So, so that is the basics of what women's clubs um, were, what they are, um, what they did in that time in the country. Um, but there is a really interesting resource if you want to hear more about the daily life of a women's club. And that is the Athens Women's Club um, that, that was active in Athens, Georgia. And I'm going to link to this in the show notes. There is a wonderful website that has their minutes um, through 1920. So you can see a really intimate look at what they did um, in their community. And of course, there, you know, this is a really small microcosm representation, but it's one of a very few minutes that you can find really accessible online that aren't tucked away in an archive somewhere that anybody can access. So some basics about the, the Athens Women's Club and where they came from. Um, they were founded in 1896 by Mary Ann Lipscomb and Rosa Woodbury. And both of these women are associated with um, the Lucy Cobb Institute, which may not mean much to many of you, but if you are a listener in Georgia, um, especially in Northern Georgia, Lucy Cobb is a, is a pretty important name in women's history and women's education. It was um, a very significant... Um, when a very significant girls' school, um, unlike many finishing schools at the time, women got a, a really good education there and could even get what the equivalent of today's associate degree. So the Athens Women's Club, which was all uh, throughout its life closely associated to Lucy Cobb, um, began with actually a bit of a civic focus. They they were still um, primarily education-based, but they, they always had that civic element from the beginning. And then as they developed, that took over as it did with many women's clubs. So they were chartered three years after their informal founding under the name Athens Women's Club. So some of their um, stuff before that was Athens Ladies Club. But after 1899, it's Athens Women's Club. They had a big educational concerns. They were establishing and improving schools. Um, they, they gave scholarships, especially to women. And they lobbied for women to attend the University of Georgia. And they were a big influence in, in actually getting that happening. Um, and in 1918, in the fall of 1918, that, that finally, that decision was allowed that women could attend the University of Georgia at, in the junior and senior classes. So other than education, they worked on war work for the First World War, um, health issues. 
Now, suffrage was a bit of a contentious issue for the Athens Women's Club and Georgia Women's Clubs in general. Suffrage was a bit of a contentious, contentious issue for women in the South in general. Um, the, the South was not an easy place to be a suffragist. And as, as I said before, you know, the women's clubs were a broader interest. So there were suffrage, pro-suffrage and anti-suffrage women in these clubs. As weird as it seems to look back and think, you know, how could you be against your own enfranchisement? Many of these women were, including Mildred Rutherford, um, another woman associated with Lucy Cobb. In fact, the, probably the most famous president, uh, not president, principal of Lucy Cobb. Um, which sounds weird to say it, that she could be a famous principal, but be prepared to hear about her again because she really was a very famous principal. Right. Um, no, I, anybody familiar with Athens where names like Lipscomb and Rutherford and yeah. Cobb, they're all places, uh, streets all in Athens are named names, after them. All the place names, all the, you know, you know, the buildings, buildings are and, named after them. They're, they're, you know, in, in all of North Georgia in general, you'll find these names appear pretty much in every small town. So, um, yeah. So, so for, for a very niche section of, of the listening audience, <laughs> these are really familiar, familiar names. names. Um, suffrage was a bit of con- contentious issue. Um, and that's something that you could really dive into why women would, would not want to have their own suffrage. Um, Part of that is certainly being raised in a culture where a woman is taught that she is, if not lesser than different, um, and perhaps above being involved in politics. There's this myth of the Southern lady on a pedestal who, if she involved herself in politics, would become lesser. That, dirtied, basically. Yeah, dirtied. That... that- Politics was beneath her station. This is one of the really insidious and, and for me, just just infuriating arguments um, <laughs> that still crops up today. Um, not on the issue of suffrage, but you will you will see it elsewhere. Yes. That and that that anti suffrage women and men used, and they said we're not saying women are are less than men. We're saying they're better than men, and that's why they shouldn't vote. Right. And you you still ah. I, ah. <laughs> I can't even start. Um, I don't know. I, this this fallacy of praise that just... Mm. There's also uh, this... No- yeah, again, it goes <laughs> to this notion that a proper lady wouldn't, wouldn't be active in politics and so therefore doesn't need the vote and then an improper lady, wouldn't, you wouldn't want them voting anyway because they're not proper. So, mm-hmm. you know, and their opinions do not matter. So you gotta yeah. get this like. You know. So there's that. There were elements of racism that went into it, um, because suddenly would have a lot more people of color voting, and um, <laughs> though the proportions would not change. Uh, there, there's so many things wrong with this. Right. Um, but the uh, other um, interesting kind of interesting point that uh, anti-suffrage women would make was that they thought they were more politically powerful as lobbyists than as voters. Which is interesting. Yeah. 
there's also a notion too that all all the votes allowing women to vote would do is just double up their husband's vote. Yeah, that was that, another big math. Yeah, you know, their husband was voting anyway, and they would just vote the same exact way, and therefore, you know, it would just the results would be the but, same, just doubled. Mm-hmm. Again, not uh, yeah. really. Uh, no. <laughs> Different no, times. for so many things. Right. Um, but um, as kind of a final note, to give you guys a, a glimpse into a day in the life of a woman's club, I've got a page um, of minutes from January 1918 um, from the Athens Women's Club. And you can see they're doing quite a lot here. So I will read this out for you guys. All right, January 1918, the January meeting of the Athens Women's Club was held in the Lucy Cobb Institute with Miss Millie Rutherford as hostess. The, meetings, uh, the minutes of the previous meeting were read and approved. The secretary, Ms. Mrs. Julius Severin, being out of town, Mrs. Charles Whittle was secretary for the afternoon, much to her own delight. Um, Mr. Hugh Gordon wrote, read a most interesting paper on thrift, but which my request has been published in the Athens banner. So you can see they're having speakers come in. Miss Millie next welcomed the club to Lucy Cobb most cordially and spoke very highly of the work done by the club. She told how she felt about co-education most freeingly. Miss Millie does not approve of co-education, but she does want the women to have equal advantages with the men. She asked the help of the club in building up Lucy Cobb and asked that we not try to get the school for an annex to the University of Georgia. In closing, she invited us to attend a series of lectures on parliamentary law by Dr. John Mel. Mrs. Green replied to Miss Millie, explaining that we did not want Lucy Cobb for the University of Georgia, that we had done our utmost to keep the trustees and the legislature from taking Lucy Cobb as we fully realized the value of the school just as it is just as it is a school for girls. Um, this was a huge issue. Um, and as you go back and read more of the minutes, it was a big issue in keeping Lucy Cobb independent right. and not having um, the university come and take it over Which and change the way that it was run. There's a certain irony to that because, again, yes, nowadays the building is the actually building owned is a part. and part of the University of Georgia. Yeah. Um, and the Lucy Cobb Institute is no more, but... The building lives on and is a really neat place to go and visit. Okay, so Mrs. Shelton thought it would be best for the clubs to ask for co-education and not mention Lucy Cobb, so she made a motion that we cooperate with Miss Millie and also ask the club women of the state not to mention Lucy Cobb in their plea for co-education. The motion was seconded and carried. Um, so when they're talking about co-education there, they're talking about allowing women to attend public universities. Um, that aren't specifically set aside for women. They're, asked, they're talking about co-education on the college level. And this goes on, but I think that's really the most interesting bit of the, um, of the meeting at that time. Um, so you can see what they're really working on and that you know, they're bringing in speakers, they're learning about current events. Um, they're concerned with education and this specific movement in their community. Interesting. So now... We talked a lot about the origin of these women's clubs, and we know they're still around today, but it doesn't seem like they're around at the same 
level today. No. And that today, you mentioned juniors clubs and things like that. Yeah, the junior you don't, league. Junior league. You don't think too much. You know, you, I'm sorry. I just don't. What happened? Why? Like, where? Where? Why did their influence start to wane? Um, they got the vote. They got the vote. That's why. And so then, at, because they got the vote, they were starting to be, I guess, be allowed to integrate with other they could, other groups. Yeah, they could work, you know, together with with men and not have to work separately on their own. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. And and. You know, they didn't think to, to keep that around. They didn't think to... You know, well, I don't think it was a... a conscious... You know, conscious it's not like everyone woke up and said, let's stop being women's clubs. It that it that As their importance naturally... faded, they, they faded over time. Okay. Hmm. So that is the women's club movement. And if you would like to learn more, you can um, follow the links on our show notes at 100centuries.com and that is 100 spelled out not the numerals and we would love to hear comments on this episode or um, any emails from you or suggestions for other episodes other episodes things like that things like that until next time until next time this is 100 centuries signing off